Um, this is such a joy for me to be here with y'all. And I am so excited just to be here to remind you that God loves you. And through the power of his word, as we open his word together over the course of this semester, I hope that you will just get an excitement for his word and also just a brand new love and appreciation for how great and good he is and how much he loves you. Uh, the first time that I read the book, oh, I was probably 20 years old, roughly. That was many, many de decades ago. And I have to tell you, though I love the book now, I hated it then. In fact, I read it and I said, well, I'm never have to read that again. And I closed the pages and walked away from it for decades until the Lord began to soften my very hard heart and brought me back to the book of Ruth. And now I look at it with such love because it was through the study of the book of Ruth in conjunction with another study I was doing at the time on the wilderness tabernacle that the Lord opened my eyes to see the wonder of discovery that Jesus Christ is on every single page and in every detail from Genesis to Revelation. He even said of himself, the volume of the book is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. In the King James, it says the sum of the book is written of me. The sum is what you get in an arithmetic problem when you add up all the bits and pieces. So every jot and tittle, you could say, in some way is an arrow that points directly to a light that shines with glory upon your bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that as we unfold this book together, you will capture the excitement of that very thing. And I think you will see as we take the next 11 weeks to study a four-chapter book, something only a woman can do, take a four-chapter book and stretch it out. But I think what you will see as we go in this study from Genesis to Revelation, that Ruth is a most unlikely heroine for this beautiful story of redemption. But... I want you to understand from the get-go that no matter your point of origin, no matter what your family tree, the Lord Jesus calls you the beloved in Christ. And you can capture hold, get, catch hold of that and hang on to it for the rest of eternity. In fact, I know that the Lord calls us holy and blameless. Blameless is not sinless, y'all. It just means that he doesn't account sin to you because Jesus took it upon himself. And he did this from the, before the foundation of the world. And you can walk in the peace of knowing the truth of that. And we will see a lot of that depicted in Ruth's story. And I want to tell you again, right up front, that her ancestry is a train wreck. It's an absolute mess. I don't know if any of you can relate to that. She is related to Adam, after all. And I know that there are lots of us who go to our Thanksgiving table and just think, Lord, what were you thinking? Families are weird. And yet he is the author of families, and he has blended you with the people that you're involved with for a great good purpose. And you will see that also here in this book of Ruth. Um, I want to take the time this week and next week to go into her family background. What did it mean to be a Moabitess? 
And so we are going to take both this week and next to look at those, uh, to look at that. And I think when you see where she comes from, it's going to make you feel a whole lot better about your family. Be encouraged right up front. We're going to take this time because it is such a point of focus as we get further into the book of Ruth. So here we go. Turn with me to Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Joshua judges Ruth. And we are going to begin this fabulous study. If I could find it, I'll go there with you. All right. You know what would help if I put these glasses on that I'm wearing around my neck like an official old lady accessory. I've decided I'm embracing the glasses on a chain. I told the ladies this morning because it's efficient and practical. So here I go. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed. Thank you very much for coming tonight, ladies. That'll be all we're going to talk about the book of Ruth today. Because we are going to begin this study in the book of Judges. The Lord even gives you the road mark right there. It came about in the days when the judges governed. So in order to really appreciate Ruth, we need to find out the historical background. And anytime you're getting ready to study any of the 66 books in the Bible, if you are starting something new, it's always important to capture in your imagination what the climate was like that these people lived in. What were they like politically, morally, spiritually? And that will help you understand. And as we go through a few examples, in the book of Judges, you are going to see that it is a very black background. And therefore, Ruth is going to shine forth off that black background like the most spectacular gem. And as we appreciate what's going on in the book of Judges, you're going to see a lot of parallels with what's going on in our world today. So if you look back even just one page to the last verse in the book of Judges, you read in chapter 21, verse 25, the synopsis of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That exact verse, verbatim, is repeated in Judges chapter 17, verse 6. And I think the Lord repeated it twice because where there are two or more witnesses, a thing is established. And he is letting us know that they lived during the time when every man, woman, and child was doing what was right in their own eyes. Now, at the point that the book of Judges begins, God has just brought the nation Israel out of Egypt through many signs and wonders, and they have taken the next 40 years to wander through the wilderness, but all the time they're doing this wilderness wandering, the Lord is protecting his people and providing for them. He is teaching them step by step that he will be their God, he will be their strength, their shield, and meet every need that they have. In return, they said, we will uh, they agreed to obey everything he asked them to do. And he said, in return, I will pour out abundant blessings on you. Sadly, they rebelled at almost every turn. And God took them to the woodshed in a lot of different ways over all those 40 years. And if you think about the arrangement they had, 
They had almighty God as their king. Who would need a human king when you have this arrangement with God? You listen to and you obey me, says God, and I will bless you abundantly. And they looked around at all the pagan nations and they said, we want a king like they have. We want to be like those people. And I think you see a lot of that in our country to this good day, sadly. Now, in the book of Judges, you will see that there's an endless cycle that is continually repeated for the entirety of the book. And it looks something like this. They would be in fellowship and at peace with God. And then they would start to look around and say, we want what they have and what they have and what they have. And pretty soon they would fall away from God, fall into sin, and it would be a time of apostasy. And then the enemy, God would raise up an enemy who would dominate them and subject them. And then after some period of time, and that will vary throughout the book, they will repent and cry out to the Lord, and he will raise up a deliverer. He calls them judges. They are a completely different animal from the judge we think of with the bench and the gavel. These were warriors who God would raise up when the people repented, and these warrior deliverers would rush out, conquer the enemy, and then you would have the deliverance and restoration, and we would start all over again, wash, rinse, repeat, for 40 years. Sadly, we are guilty of doing the same thing this day, to this day. We are still, every man, doing what is right in his own eyes. So as the Israelites back in this day would reach the repentance stage, as I said, God would raise up a deliverer. And through the leadership of those individuals, God would vanquish the enemy and restore peace with his children until they got right back on the wheel, that is, because we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Sadly, we do it way too often. So let's look at one particular story in the book of Judges that ties directly to Ruth. Judges chapter 3. And right off the bat, you know that this is just after crossing the Jordan into the promised land. For those of you who have studied the Bible for a long time, this story will probably be familiar. And for those of you who are newly saved or new to Bible study and maybe new to the Old Testament, boy, you have an adventure in store for you. I'm so excited for you. Okay. So we are going to read this story from Judges chapter 3, starting in verse uh, 12. And in this particular story, the judge is a man named Ehud. He is the deliverer of Israel, and the enemy at this time is Eglon, king of Moab. And some rabbinic scholars say that he was the father or possibly the grandfather of Ruth. I don't know if that's true, but I tell you when you get to heaven and you meet her, you can say, Ruth, I read your book, and I have some, woo! <laughs> As I said this morning, when someone's cell phone went off and sounded like a rooster, I said, I thought it was going to be a trumpet, but y'all are still here. The podium rose, and I'm still here, so that was a false alarm. Hello. The foolish things of this world. All right. Where was I, for heaven's sake? Oh, the father or grandfather of Ruth. You can ask her. Tell her you've got a list of questions. You have, uh, so start making that list today. Um, now, this particular cycle, as I said, the enemy is 
uh, uh, Moab, Ruth's kinfolk, and they are led by King Eglon, a very fat man. And I am not being unkind. I am just quoting scripture. You will see. So starting in verse 12, we are going to read this story. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Now we read that he gathers some uh, affiliates around him and they go to attack the city and they possess the city of the palm trees. For you Bible scholars, that is Jericho. And it was just roughly 60 years prior to this that the walls of Jericho came a-tumbling down in a great victory. And now that city is conquered by this pagan king. Verse 14, the sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. If you were to go back and read verse 8, you would find that the previous conqueror had them in subjection for eight years. That was eight. This is 18. And on that subject, Matthew Henry writes this. He says, the Israelites lost that by their own sin, which they had gained by miracles of divine mercy. The former, that reference in verse eight to the eight years, the former servitude lasted but eight years years, this one, 18. And you tell me if this isn't true, if you haven't seen this true in your life. For if less troubles do not do the work, God will send greater. Have you all seen that to be true? I shared with the ladies this morning, you know, Texas is, is underwater and the whole north West of our country's on fire, and two more hurricanes are getting ready to slam the east. Not long ago, we were reading all about and, and hearing the stories about Katrina. There was 9-11. If less won't do the job, God will send greater because he loves us, and he wants to draw us to him. And sadly, when everything is cake and life is easy, we're like, got this, God. The believers, as well as those who are lost and dying in the world. So he is sending a greater, I believe, to our country because I think he's refining us to get out of here. I'll leave that with you for what it's worth. Now, this time, the greater he sends are Ruth's kinfolk from Moab. Now, I'm not sure how close in, to, in uh, generations this story takes place to Ruth, actually, whether it was her father or grandfather. It could be many generations down the road. I'm not really sure about that. But you will see that this is an ancestral enmity between these two people. And so it's important to keep that in mind. Verse 15 uses one of my favorite little words in the Bible, but... Don't you love it when there's a but God in there somewhere? So, but when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. And the sons of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. The first fruits of all Israel's produce was meant to be given to God in an act of worship. And because of their sin, they are now taking that offering and a lot more, and they're giving it to this pagan king who is a gluttonous, greedy, licentious mess. Verse 16, Ehud, 
made himself a sword which had two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. I always find it intriguing when the Holy Spirit gives us details like this. And in these verses, he tells us that, first of all, we have a man named Ehud. He's a Benjamite, but a left-handed Benjamite. And that he constructs a sword, a special custom-made two-edged sword. Does that ring any bells with you Bible scholars? A two-edged sword. File that away. We're going to come back to it. And it's roughly 18 inches long. Just again, a point of interest, a cubit was roughly considered to be 18 inches long. It was meant to be the measurement between the tip of your longest finger and the crook of your elbow. But whose cubit are you going to use? My cubit is X, and I bet your pastor's, who's a very tall man, probably has a Y cubit. So somewhere along the way, they said, let's standardize it, and we're going to call it roughly 18 inches. So I want you to get in your mind how big that sword is strapped on his right thigh, concealed there. As for this reference to the tribe of Benjamin, many of them were left-handed or ambidextrous. They were also fierce fighters. They were not to be gainsaid. The very hot-tempered King Saul and the fiery apostle Paul both ends of the time spectrum, biblically speaking, were from this tribe. And I think it's important to recognize this because over the long haul of the Bible's unfolding, we see that the tribe of Benjamin survives. There are no lost 12 tribes. They all knew who they were affiliated with and who they belonged to. But when you read the book of Judges, you will see that because of their gross sin, the tribe of Benjamin was almost wiped out. And this is what I love about our God. He delights to make and keep his promises. And he promised that he was going to bring home 100, not 99. And when you get to the book of Revelation, there are mighty promises for Benjamin. So despite their sin in Judges and their almost annihilation, he is faithful to bring home all that the Lord has given him. And I think that historical perspective is a really good one to have. Now, if you read in 1 Chronicles, write this down for your notes. This is just information that I'm quoting to you, but I want you to be able to put your eyes on it later when you go back to review your notes. 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, talk about these fierce, fighting, uh, ambidextrous Benjamites. It says that they are among the mighty men who helped David in war. They were equipped with bows, so they were expert bowmen with using both the right and the left hand to sling stones and to shoot arrows from the bow. They were Saul's kinsmen from Benjamin. In Judges chapter 20, you read a further little detail. It says that these guys could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. That's a skill set. Also, just for your notes, in 1 Samuel 9, Chapter, uh, verses 1 and 2, that's where you will read that Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. And the reference for Paul being from the tribe of Benjamin, Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. He says, of the nation Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And he goes off to list his credentials. Many years ago, I'm going to cough. Excuse me, just one moment. <coughs> Many years ago, there was this sweet, 
godly, elderly lady that we were in fellowship with. Her name was Beverly. She's since gone home to be with the Lord. And she was a prayer warrior and an evangelist to her toes. And she was this big. And she always wore these great big bright red hats. She was so dear. After hearing this teaching, one day shortly after, she had a repairman come to her house and she noticed he was left-handed. And she used this story to share Christ with him. And if I know sweet Beverly, that man was gloriously saved that day. Because the word of God is not going to return void. Even the most incidental details are divinely inspired. And being a lefty, I greatly appreciate this historical record because traditionally being left-handed is a very bad thing. Are there any other lefties in the room besides me? All right, solidarity sisters. (laughs) Lefties are cool, but it hasn't always been so. Back in the day, and if you look at classic art, you will always see Satan or Judas Iscariot depicted to the left side of Jesus. And in the um, French language, the word for left is gauche, which means in English tactless or awkward. And even worse yet, the Latin word for left is sinister. Makes you feel really good about yourself, doesn't it? Um, In medieval heraldry, if your coat of arms depicted you on the left side of the shield, that meant you were the illegitimate son. And it was also, back in the medieval day, linked with witchcraft. If you were left-handed, you were suspect. If you were left-handed and red-haired, you were burnt at stake without any questions being asked. It, It watered down over time to just mean unlucky or unfavorable. And yet, the Lord chose to use this left-handed man from the tribe of Benjamin to be the one to bring victory, to deliver and save his sinful people from their enemy. But the Lord won't leave it there. He won't leave negative connotations on anything about you. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 16, speaking of wisdom, he says, length of days is in her right hand and in her left hand riches and honor. You are beloved of Christ, sisters. And I will tell you that it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from, what deficiencies real or perceived you possess. The Lord loved you from the foundation of the world, even when you were unlovely. And he will use you to bring glory to himself if you will be willing and obedient for his good pleasure. And it just may be your flaws that make you perfectly suited to the task at hand. Remember from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 and 29, we read that he deliberately chose the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. He chose the powerless to show the powerful that they were nothing. He chose all of the unlikely candidates so that when we stand before him, no one can boast. Everything that the world holds high will be brought to nothing so that God alone will have the glory. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He deliberately chose me. So that makes me qualified to serve the most high God, even if I am predominantly left-handed. So, you know, when I think of this, Christ in me, the hope of glory, that's my certification for service right there. 
So we move on. Ehud's sword is hidden on his right thigh. Why this detail? Because most soldiers were not left-handed. And a right-handed soldier straps his weapon on the left. A right-handed left, a right side with a left-handed draw is unexpected. And I don't know where the Secret Service was on this day, but they were not checking lefties. I imagine that he's got his robe on, and when they go in through to make sure that everybody's safe and wonderful, open up that left side, and you see there's no weapon. Nobody's checking the right side. God purposely blinded their eyes to this weapon. He maneuvers King Eglon into a private one-on-one -on -one meeting. So let's pick up the story in verse 17. It says, he presented, presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. It came about when he had finished presenting the tribute that he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. So he's got a whole team of people who are carrying this offering to King Eglon. And now Ehud is going to send them all away, but he is going to turn around and go back. Verse 19, but he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal. Gilgal is that location of the 12 memorial stones that Joshua set up to commemorate the crossing of the Jordan into the promised land. One stone for every tribe. And apparently, when Moab came in and conquered, they set up idols in that spot. Many scholars say that maybe seeing those idols in that place is what turned Ehud around and strengthened him to go back and use that double-edged sword he had strapped on his leg. He says, <clears throat> I have a secret message for you, O king. And he, King Eglon, said, oh, keep silence, keep silence. And all who attended him left him. Get out of the room, get out of the room. Secret message for me. Guy is stupid. <laughs> Verse 20. Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. Now Eglon was a very fat man. Y'all, the Bible rarely comments on the appearance of a person. You know, if there is extreme beauty, it might mention it like Sarah or Esther or Absalom. Or if it's something out of the ordinary, like the height of a person, Goliath or Zacchaeus. But it is man's focus to look on the outside. God looks at the heart. So when the Lord comments on something like this, you know it's something out of the ordinary, something extreme. Uh, Pastor Joe Foch said that rabbinic scholars have said that he was over 20 feet around. He was a very fat man. Verse 21, Ehud stretched out his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. The handle also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not draw the sword out of his belly, and the refuse came out. I like the King James here. It says, and the dirt came out. Then, verse 23, Ehud went out into the vestibule, shut the doors of the roof chamber behind him, and locked them. When he had gone out... 
His, the king's servants, came and looked, and behold, the doors of the roof chamber were locked. And they said, oh, he's only relieving himself in the cool room. What an ignominious end for this guy. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you be horrified if the Lord wrote these details about your life down? Praise God, he, did. he got it out of his system over here with this guy. Verse 25, they waited. The servants are waiting outside until they become anxious. And behold, he did not open the doors of the roof chamber. Therefore, they took a key and opened them. And behold, their master had fallen to the floor dead. Now Ehud escaped while they were delaying. And he passed by the idols and escaped to that place right there. And it came about when he had arrived, that he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was in front of them. He said to them, pursue them, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan opposite Moab and did not allow anyone to cross. They struck down at that time about 10 thousand Moabites, all robust and valiant men, and no one escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land was undisturbed for 80 years. So Israel was delivered, but the cycle will continue through the period of the judges. And as I said before, even to this good day, Every man is still doing what is right in his own eyes. This story of Ehud and Eglon concludes with a very great victory for Israel and very heavy casualties for Ruth's kinfolk. For the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands this day. And as I mentioned a little bit ago, it's important for us to constantly keep that ancestral enmity fresh in our minds as we go through the book of Ruth. And we're going to look at that a little bit more next week. But tonight I want to touch on this. One of the things that I discovered when I first started to study the Bible in earnest and embrace Jesus on every page, what I learned was that the Old Testament was God's picture book. And he would lay out a picture, a type or a model in the Old Testament and then talk about it and reveal more detail about it in the New. And Moab, we learn, if you continue to study the history of this nation in your Bibles, you will learn that it is a type of the flesh that the Holy Spirit uses to teach us a lot of important things. And this very gruesome depiction of the death of Moab's King Eglon is included here so that we have a clear picture what we need to do to conquer our flesh. The double-edged sword went in and the dirt came out. Our flesh is just like King Eglon, always consuming, never satisfied, self-serving, indulged, gluttonous, stupid, grotesque. But when the double-edged sword of the word of God goes in, into our bellies, into the very heart of who we are, the dirt comes out. It's vividly graphic and true. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 3, Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken to you. The word of God is a cleansing. If you look again at the conclusion of this story in Judges, 
Starting at roughly verse 23, you read that Ehud went out into the vestibule, shut the doors of the roof chamber behind him, and locked them. This is a picture of conquering the flesh. First thing Ehud did was put it to death. He shoved that sword in and killed it. Then he left the room, locked the door, and then in a perfect picture of repentance, turned around and ran the other way. Now, when the enemy gave chase, he did not toy with it. He gathered reinforcements about him and he went to battle. And they did not condone it or fool around with it in any way. They refused, in fact, to let the enemy hold or gain any ground. They subdued Moab, the flesh, that day. That is a practical model for us. We need to treat the flesh like the enemy that it is. And when we, need, when we use this sword, the word of God, like he intended, we will find much, much more than the dirt coming out. We will find encouragement and being built up in the Holy Spirit and the power of God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds forever. It's a beautiful picture. Augustine wrote, if thou sin... The word of God is thy adversary. It is the adversary of thy will until it become the author of thy salvation. And I would say amen to that because remember I told you I hated the book of Ruth the first time I read it? It was because it revealed stuff to me that I didn't want to deal with. It was the adversary of my will. And now it is the author of my salvation. Now it is the joy and delight of my heart, this powerful two-edged sword. We can conquer the flesh and be victorious by the power of the Holy Spirit through the word of God. But in order to deal with everything that comes our way, we have to be trained and practiced in the use of this weapon. The double-edged, all-powerful sword of the Word of God is quick and active. That means it's alive and it's powerful. And it's not going to do you any good. It won't do me any good to hear someone explain how to use this sword. We have to pick it up for ourselves. We have to feel the weight of it in our hands. We have to learn to use it, navigate through it, and apply it to ourselves if we want to be expert warriors for the kingdom of God. If we want to be able to make a defense for ourselves, we need to open the word and practice using it every single day. And I can listen to any number of great teachers, and please don't misunderstand me. That is a valuable part of, of the learning process. But if I never feel the weight of this sword in my own hand, I'm not going to be an effective soldier. And my spiritual muscles will not be strengthened in the same way when I'm doing the study and hearing from God on my own. When the sword goes in, the dirt comes out. But it's not the only thing it does. Can you imagine, y'all, how you would feel if the Lord just shone his spotlight on your sin, in your, all the sin in your life, and left you in that condition without a remedy? But he doesn't do that. If we will confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you learn all about that in the pages of this fabulous, incredible book. I just think about the incredible grace and mercy of God. 
And when I first started studying the word, I would hear people talk about the grace and the mercy of God, and I could never in my mind separate the two. They seemed synonyms to me. But when I would read, I would constantly see grace and mercy. That little word and kept telling me there's more to this, Martha, than you think. It's not grace and mercy. It's grace and mercy. So what is it? I still could not. I did word studies. I studied. But for some reason, in my mind, it was just a fuzzy um, line of demarcation until the day that my grandmother told me a story. When my mother was a little girl, they lived in Ohio, and they were getting ready to go somewhere fancy. And my grandmother got Susie and Sally, Sally is my mom, Susie and Sally all dressed up and had their hair all curled and a big white bow in their hair and these beautiful white dresses with the petticoats all underneath and the big bow. Some of you are like, yeah, I remember that day. And then she said, now, Susie and Sally, mother's going to go get dressed now, and I'll be back, and then we'll go. So off went Thelma, my grandmother, and she got herself dressed and came back out, and where are Susie and Sally? Where have those girls gone? What in the world could they be doing? And she caught a glimpse out of the corner of her eye, something out in the backyard, something hanging over the split rail fence. So she goes charging out there, full of spit and vinegar. Ah, what have those girls been up to? And long before she got near them, she smelled them. And these two little girls were out there hanging over the rail of that fence just violently ill because in the idle moments left to these girls, they decided it would be a fun thing to take bricks and throw them in the outhouse. And now they are covered from head to toe in the fruits of their labors. And they're being violently sick. Now, here's the difference between grace and mercy. Grace comes upon this scene because when you were hanging over the split row fence covered in your own filth, God found you there, and there's no doubt about it. You were guilty. These girls are wearing the evidence all over them. Grace could have said, I forgive you. I love you. Now, get yourself up off that fence and go down to the creek and come back when you're decent. But mercy comes along and sees that you are miserable. And these girls were absolutely miserable. And mercy goes over and plucks you off of the fence and transfers all your filth right onto him. And then he cleans you up and restores you, wraps his robe of righteousness around you, fresh and clean. Behold, a new creation. Oh, the sweet grace and the mercy of God. And I pray that as we go through this fabulous book this semester, you will see that unfolding in really vivid, new, and fresh ways. And that there will be such a fire in your heart for the word of God and taking this sword and going out into the world and sharing the great good news of Jesus Christ with everyone you meet. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the power of your word. It is quick and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We ask, Lord, that as we continue this study, you will be our tutor and our guide all the way through the book of Ruth. Lord, we pray that you will have your way in conforming us to the image of your son. And thank you for the work you are doing 
and will do in our hearts as we continue, as you continue to woo us to yourself in, in everlasting love in a new way. All of these things we ask in the name of our precious Savior and Bridegroom, Jesus Christ, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen.